This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and happy Veterans Day to my fellow warriors out there. Uh, I hope you're having a good day. I hope you're being honored the way you should be honored, uh, at least by the, the people who know you and the people that live in your town or in your city. Uh, you're not being honored by Obama or the federal government or the high-ups of the Pentagon who do whatever Obama tells them. But, you know, it's we need to think about what today really means. A little over 71 years ago, on June 6, 1944, my father landed with his battalion, the 87th Chemical Mortar Battalion, on Utah Beach. Now, these guys fired the great big 4.2 mortars. They were the biggest mortars in the U.S. military. And they had immense firepower, and they were very mobile. And they quickly, they and the other unit in Europe, actually I think there were a total of three by the end of the war, but these were battalions who were very mobile, and they became the most sought-after fire support units in Europe simply because of the fact that they were so accurate and they were able to provide close support for the infantry, both when they were on the defensive and the offensive. And my dad kept a meticulous diary during the time they were in combat. By the way, they were in combat for 326 straight days, almost a year, and they fought in the Battle of the Bulge, the Hurricane Forest, Sherburne Peninsula, they liberated a uh, death camp at Nordhausen. Uh, they were involved in heavy fighting almost from the very beginning. And he, like I said, kept a meticulous diary. And when he died in 1987 at the age of 66, I had wanted to do something with that diary. I was thinking about maybe uh, typing it up and just having it published as his diary. But then for years I wasn't able to do anything really with it because I was so busy practicing law. And when I retired from my law practice, that was the first time I retired, and hopefully it'll be a second time before long. But uh, I started writing, and I worked. my first book was a book uh, called Riders in the Sky, The Ghosts and Legends of Philmont Scout Ranch which became very popular and still is very popular with the, the scouts around the country because it's about 37,000 acres, 137,000 acres owned by the Boy Scouts of America uh, that is considered in the area the most haunted place in the world. So that was the first book I came out with. But I still wanted to do something to honor my dad's memory and to honor the memory of those people he fought with. I started doing the research on the Internet and found out that shortly after my father died, an association of the survivors of the 87th Chemical Mortar Battalion had been formed. And I contacted, they had a website, still have the website. I don't know if it's been updated lately, but it's 4.2.org. The number 4, then point, P-O-I-N-T, then the number 2.org. Because that's the size of the mortars they, were, they fired. So I got in touch with the administrator of the website because it, it talked about not just the 87th but with other chemical mortar battalions because there were several of them operating in the Pacific also. And he put me in touch with the 
person who was in charge of setting up the reunions for the men of the 87th. And they sent me a list of all their members, names and addresses, and I prepared questionnaires and sent them out to these men, basically asking them about their service, asking them about uh, what rank were they, what was their jobs in the battalion, and to give me some personal stories and insights, uh, tell me about any medals or awards they had won. And by the way, this battalion was extremely heavily decorated, and uh, a lot of men won bronze stars, silver stars, a lot of purple hearts. And uh, in fact, my father's company, Company B, because of their actions in the Battle of the Bulge, were awarded both the French and Belgium Croix de Guerre's, but they didn't know it because it was awarded just as the war was ending. They were already being sent back to the States to be disbanded, and it was years later uh, that they found out that the, uh, the entire company had been designated to receive that award. But in any case, I started contacting these men. There were 300 on the list at that point, and they gave me a lot of information. They sent me some of them had kept diaries. Uh, some of which they've been transcribed. They sent me copies of diaries. They sent me hundreds of photographs uh, that had never been published anywhere. Uh, they told me on the phone about their personal stories. And so I began to write this book. And more importantly, they sent me the battalion records, day-to-day records of the battalion and all four companies, their daily reports. So I had literally thousands of documents to pour through and it took me basically three years or actually four years to write the book because it has, uh, there was so much I had to go through and during that time I lost touch with some of these veterans and I realized that they were dying off at a fairly alarming rate by the time I actually had the book published which was 2005 there were only 75 men, as far as I know, left alive in the battalion, at least those that were members of the organization. Of course, there were some that they'd never been able to contact. But 75 were left alive. Now, just before I had the book published, in order to flesh it out, they had a reunion in Baltimore, Maryland, which was going to be their final reunion, because they didn't realize it at the time, but only 11 men showed up. 11 men and their families showed up for the reunion. And one of them was my father's best friend and uh, while he served in the B Company, the 87th. And I sat down with them one at night. They had a banquet. And uh, my oldest boy, Sean, who, by the way, I want to send out a happy Veterans Day to my oldest boy, Sean, and my youngest son, Tim, both of who are still on active duty with the military. <clears throat> Sean has served four tours in Afghanistan, two in Iraq, and has been in other places, and right now is just back overseas again uh, in Europe. So happy Veterans Day to you guys. I'm very proud of you. You have no idea how proud I am of you. And your grandfather would be equally proud or even more so. But Sean came. He was, at that point, home from Afghanistan from a tour, and he was stationed in Virginia, and uh, he came to the banquet in uniform, 
and they were so excited about the fact that there were two generations represented after my father, who obviously could not be there because he'd been dead for a number of years at that point. But they had a son who was a military veteran, that being me, and a grandson who was a military veteran. So we had the banquet, and after the banquet, I took these guys and their families into the hotel bar, and I got them to set me up a great big round table, and I got all these men sitting around that table, and I bought them all a round of drinks, actually several rounds, and I took my little portable tape recorder, turned it on, and sat it down in the middle of the table and just let them start talking. And they talked, and they reminisced, and they picked on each other. They shared humorous stories about each other. They shared stories about the fellow soldiers they had lost. The next, that night, after we broke up and the next morning, members of the families who were sitting there, uh, not at the table, but near the table, some of them came and told me that they had never heard from their fathers or grandfathers some of the stories that they heard them telling that night. They never knew a lot of this. And I told them very simply, that's because they don't talk about it that much. Not with you, not with me. They'll talk about it with each other. Now, my dad, he used to tell stories about the war. Mostly they were humorous. Except on the occasions when he had a little too much to drink, which was rare, but it did happen. And he'd be home and he'd start talking about some of the horrible things that he saw and some of the things he had to do. I got stories from these men, and I translated them into a book called The Mortarman. And you can buy that book through my website at Michael Connolly, C-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y dot Jigs, D-J-I-G-S-Y dot com. You can buy it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It's available as an e-book. It's been doing quite well. At one point, about this time last year, it was selling about 700 copies a month. And a lot of people are reading this book, and it's bringing to mind who these men were and why they were part of our greatest generation. I tried to tell their story the best I could, and they're very grateful for the way I told it. The problem is, is that as far as I know right now, there are only a handful left alive. I'm only in contact with two of those men. Some of them that were my closest contacts, I haven't heard from in months, can't get a hold of them, assuming they have either passed away or maybe a nursing home somewhere. Because they're all in their 90s now, or at least late 80s or 90s. See, my dad was 21 years old when he was landed at D-Day. He was considered the old man in the unit. He and the captain, Captain Marshall, of uh, commander of Company B. My dad was first lieutenant, and he uh, basically had a number of jobs. Uh, The battalion had mortar platoons that actually fired the mortars. And then my dad's job was basically 
He was in charge of ammunition supply. He was in charge of the motor pool. He was in charge of making sure they got the food they needed. And he was in charge of recon. Now, recon meant that he would go out ahead of everybody else, sometimes even the infantry. And recon position is to set up the mortars. If the infantry was going to be attacking in a certain direction, he would recon the area to set up the mortars. And he came very close to getting killed on several occasions. But fortunately for him, he was not even wounded during the war. That wasn't true of most of the men of the 87th. There were a thousand men in the battalion, and they suffered 120% casualties because of the number of men that were wounded, killed, or, or captured, or missing, and the replacements that came in. Let's take our first break now. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Hello, I'm Pat Rulo, hostess of Speak Up and Stay Alive, the voice for patient safety. Now heard every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. right here at AmericasWebRadio.com. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law case, the Obama eligibility cases, the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. So, what does 120% casualties mean? How does that work? Well, it meant that almost everyone in the unit was either killed or wounded or captured at some point. And a lot of the replacements of some of those who were killed were also wounded. And this was, I found to be fascinating when I talked to these guys, because many of them received what I would call serious wounds, but they considered fairly minor wounds. In other words, they they weren't particularly life-threatening but they had to be taken care of to keep them from getting infected. And they would treat their own wounds, or they would have the medics 
for their companies to treat their wounds. And the reason for this is they did not want to be sent to the battalion aid station. Because if they were sent to battalion aid, then they could they would be reassigned, possibly, to another unit. And it might not even be a mortar unit. They might not get back to their, their unit, the 87th. And these men were incredibly loyal to their unit and to the members of their unit. And I saw this when I met with him. I, I heard this in my father's voice before when he talked about it. And he talked about the, the friends he'd made and the friends he'd lost. I remember in 2004 when John Kerry was running for president. And I heard about his so-called Purple Hearts and his Bronze Star. And I started researching it and actually got a copy of his medical records, his military medical records. The Purple Hearts he received were for scratches. One of them was not even in combat. He was on one of the swift boats and he was playing around apparently and fired a grenade launcher at the rocks on the shore. And it exploded and a piece of the rock came back and scratched his arm. And he got a purple heart for that because he wanted one. And he got a purple heart for another apparently self-inflicted wound. And here we had all of these guys in the 87th. And in my book, I have a list of all the men who received Purple Hearts and received Bronze Stars and received Silver Stars for heroism. And it's a long, long list. But it's not all of them, particularly in the Purple Heart area, because they covered up their wounds. They self-treated their wounds. Or they had them treated by their buddies in the company because they did not want to leave their battalion or leave their company. There was that much loyalty among these brave men. Now they're mostly all gone. And soon will be all gone. That's why I wanted to tell their story. And that's why I hope people will read their story. One of the things the books, book contains that you probably won't find in any other books that I know of, or not many anyway, is some of these guys, one in particular, had been in touch with soldiers in Germany after the war. Soldiers who had fought against the 87th Chemical Mortar Battalion. In two cases, they kept diaries of the Battle of the Hurricane Forest. Now, Battle of the Hurricane Forest, as I mentioned in my book, is a battle that's never been fought. We suffered tremendous American casualties in order to take a position where they basically a German division was surrounded and cut off. They didn't. They could have been starved out. Lieutenant Omar Bradley, who I greatly admire in most respects, but in this case made a horrendous mistake, decided they had to take the Hurricane Forest and hundreds of Americans died needlessly in that battle. But in the Battle of the Hurricane Forest, these two German soldiers who sent me copies of their diaries, the excerpts from their diaries, which I include in the book, and they talked about 
the 87th Chemical Mortar Battalion. They talked about the 4.2 mortars. They talked about how horrendous the fire from those mortars was because they basically fired two types of rounds, high explosive rounds, which were used to blow up emplacements, to use them to hit tanks. And these guys were so good that they could hit a moving tank from several miles away. But they also fired white phosphorus, which were basically designed to produce smoke to cover the advance of infantry or to protect the infantry if they were withdrawing. But they, they put out these white-hot pieces of shrapnel, if you want to call them that, and they were burning phosphorus is what it was. And when these got on somebody, you couldn't put water on them. You couldn't put them out. They had to be basically pulled out one at a time. And these caused horrendous casualties. The Germans were terrified of them, of white phosphorus. But they were used, like I said, primarily, initially, they were used to try to provide smoke screens for the movement of American military. But then they became such a horrific weapon, as far as the Germans were concerned, that they were used more often simply because the Germans would sometimes pull completely out of position and retreat this white phosphorus round began falling on their position. But these were the men of the 87th. And I put the excerpts of the two German diaries in the book, and I heard from both German soldiers. They both sent me letters thanking me were including their side of the story. So in that book, I have a day-by-day history of the battalion and all four companies. And I tell the personal stories that I got from these men. And I tell the, the stories of heroism that I got from them. And, you know, I wrote an article for my blog, and that's also, you can find it on michaelconnolly.jigsley.com, called I Never Met a War Hero. Because when I was sitting there talking to these men, that night sitting around the table in the bar or talking to them individually, some of them I knew from the research I'd done at that point, some of them I knew had received awards for heroism. Yet when I asked them about that, they would say, oh, well, that's no big deal. I'm not a hero. This guy over here, and they point to their buddy, he's a hero. Let me tell you what he did. And I found that out from, I found that from most all veterans. Even in my American Legion post in Carrollton, Texas, which I was honored to command for two years. Nobody ever talked about the medals they had won. Nobody ever talked about being heroes. It was always my buddy was a hero. The guy in the foxhole next to me was a hero. I wasn't a hero. I just did my job. Contrast that to John Kerry, for example, who ran for president as a hero, and when he was in the military, for a very short period of time, by the way, he fabricated reasons for getting Purple Hearts, 
he used his connections to get medals. And then he got back and decided he wanted to be a hero of the far left and turn on his fellow soldiers and sailors and call them baby killers and accuse them of all kinds of horrific things in Vietnam. He took his medals and threw them over the fence at the White House as protest. And this is the guy that wanted to be the President of the United States and is now our Secretary of State and now has negotiated the treaty with Iran, which is a betrayal, not only of our military, but of our entire country. A treaty that's going to get a lot of people around the world killed. So that's the kind of guy that we have there. The 87th, we have the greatest generation. And now we have the men and women who have fought in Afghanistan, are still fighting in Afghanistan, who have fought in Iraq, who fought in Vietnam, who fought in Korea. There are very few Korean War veterans left, by the way. All of my friends who, who were in the Korean War have died. And uh, a lot of my friends who were in the Vietnam War have died. When I, when I was commander of the American Legion Post, I found out something that absolutely stunned me. And that was that, and we're talking about four or five years ago that I learned this, that of 1.5 million men and women in the U.S. military who actually served in Vietnam, in country, or served on ships that were in battle, 75% of them are now dead. Now, we're mostly in our 60s. That's a rate of attrition that is higher than any in the history of our military. So there are veterans out there of these wars, but a lot of them are not many left. That's why they have to be thanked. And the people who have served in the most recent wars and are still serving need to be thanked. On my Facebook page yesterday, I'm not a big follower of Facebook, but I occasionally check it, and there was a, a post from one of my followers on Facebook who I've never met, but she reads my blog post, which I also post on Facebook, and she was telling me that her son, a young Marine, was here in the States in uniform, and he was going into a building, and there were some people coming from behind him, so he held the door open for them, and they spit on him as they went by. And he, he talked about how devastated he was by this. And I know how he feels, because when I wore the uniform back during the Vietnam War, I was spit on by some of my so-called fellow Americans. We have the military under attack by our own government. We have had, and this has been reported by a government agency, we've had over 300,000 veterans die in the last few years because they couldn't get treatment with the VA. In some cases, they couldn't even get on the system and get VA benefits. That's more than all the American soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen that died in the Korean War, the Vietnam War, Grenada, 
Operation Desert Storm and the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq combined. In fact, that's three times as many. Think about that while we take our second break. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law case, the Obama eligibility cases, the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Think about what I just said before the break. Over 300,000 American veterans, men and women who have served us honorably in our military, have died because they couldn't get treatment at the VA hospitals. Our own government has killed three times as many people as all of those who died in the Korean War, the Vietnam War, Grenada, Operation Desert Storm, and the War on Terror in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places. Now, didn't we hear about a year ago when all this was, the story was breaking and we found out that at least 40 veterans, and I think it was probably closer to several hundred, had died in Phoenix, Arizona, while trying to get treatment at the Phoenix VA hospital because their records were being basically trashed. The employees of the VA center there wanted to make it look like they were treating more people than they were, or at least like they were treating the people that needed to be treated. So they would just take files, medical records of veterans who were seeking treatment, and they would hide them. And that way these veterans not only did not get treatment, but when they called the VA, they were told they weren't even in the system. At least 40 died. Obama appointed a new head of the VA, promised that this was going to be resolved. Uh, we were promised that people were going to have their heads rolled, that hundreds were going to lose their jobs, 
that they were going to make a clean sweep of the VA. As far as I know, only one person, a low-level person at that, has been fired as a result of all of this. And this wasn't just Phoenix. This was all over the country this was happening. They weren't treating our veterans. Veterans were waiting for months to get treated for cancer or to get treated for heart disease, and they were dying. Part of the reason was that Obama was more concerned with turning the VA hospitals and our national cemeteries into green zones. We spent thousands, actually a couple million dollars, putting solar panels and windmills to provide electricity to the national cemeteries in this country. For what? That's money that could have been used to treat our veterans. But thousands were not treated. And now many of them are dead. And nobody got fired except for one person. Some of the people, the other people that were involved in this, they were transferred. Some of them got to retire with full pay and benefits. Were never punished. Never lost a penny as a result of this. Some of them even got promotions, from what I've heard. Ladies and gentlemen, our veterans deserve better. And it's not gotten any better. We at the United States Justice Foundation are working with a lot of veterans around the country on the Second Amendment issues primarily because they're being denied their right to keep and bear arms for crazy reasons that they're being declared incompetent to handle their own financial affairs. But we work with veterans in other areas too. And one veteran contacted me recently. He's got terminal cancer. But it might not have to be terminal if he can get the treatment he needs, if he can get the chemo. He doesn't live within 40 miles of a VA facility, a VA hospital, or VA clinic for that matter. <clears throat> At least he didn't think he did. So under this new set of rules and regulations in the VA, he is supposed to be able to get treated locally by a local physician at a local hospital, and the VA will pay for it. He goes to get the treatment. The hospital checks with the VA, and the VA says, no, he's not eligible because he lives within 40 miles of a VA clinic. And the veteran in the hospital were both surprised. I said, okay, well, where is this, this facility? Can he get his chemo there? And they said, well, it's a dental facility. But that's the rules. There's a facility that he's within 40 miles of, so he cannot get treatment from your hospital. The VA will not pay for it because he's got a dental clinic a few miles away. That's our federal government at work. That's the Obama administration at work. That's what our veterans are facing right now. They're losing their First Amendment rights, their Second Amendment rights, their Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights. A lot of, you know, in VA hospitals right now, they have taken the chapels in these hospitals and put coverings 
over anything displayed in the chapel that hints of Christianity or even hints of God. Chaplains are being told in the VA hospitals, do not quote the scriptures, do not quote from the Bible, do not pray with veterans. Veterans are being denied the last rites by Catholic chaplains or Catholic priests because they don't want you to offend somebody. So freedom of religion is gone, not just in the VA hospitals, but in the military where chaplains are, are being stifled from expressing their beliefs. We had a situation the United States Justice Foundation was looking into a few years ago, and fortunately it was resolved uh, by a, a local uh, legal foundation, but we were involved in the periphery of it, working on it, and that was the situation in Houston at the National Cemetery, where a new female director of the cemetery down there sent out letters to members of the American Legion and VFW posts in the area who provided color guards and honor guards for veterans who were being buried there and also for, in some cases, for active duty military, but mostly for veterans, including homeless veterans that had nobody there, but somebody was always going to be at a veteran's funeral. In my American Legion post, we made sure of that. So did other posts. But a group of the American Legion and another group of, of, of people who were just working to be there at the funerals and to comfort the families, they would hand out cards to the family members that said, God bless you. The director of the cemetery informed them that they could no longer do that. She also informed all the chaplains and any ministers who might be presiding over funerals that they could not say a prayer unless they put that prayer in writing and sent it to her for her prior approval to make sure that prayer did not offend anybody. What was offensive in the prayers? The mention of Jesus, even the mention of God. How do you say a prayer without mentioning God or referencing God? How do you do that? As far as we could tell, this did not apply to any Muslims who might be buried in the cemetery. Although I don't know of any that were were during that period. But suit had to be filed to stop this nonsense. But it's still happening in our VA hospitals. It's still happening in our military. Recently, a chaplain was reinstated by the courts to his position in the military because he had been fired for daring to mention that he did not believe in same-sex marriage. This has got to end. We need to respect and honor our veterans. We need for the government that they fought for to respect and honor them, and we need to make sure that the Constitution they fought for applies to them. How do you think I feel as a veteran, or other veterans out there feel, or members of the military feel, when we see the Constitution I fought for, 
and the Constitution I had friends die fighting for is now being perverted to deny me and my fellow veterans our constitutional rights. To tell us we are second-class citizens. This is not really a new problem, but it's one that I've seen worsen over the last couple of years. I'll tell you another story, and this is something else that we were recently involved in at the United States Justice Foundation. We had a 93-year-old World War II veteran who contacted us because he had throat cancer, and he had been approached by somebody who worked for the VA, a VA employee, who told him that they were going to declare him incompetent to handle his own financial affairs, and they were going to appoint a fiduciary to handle it for him. Well, he argued with him. He said, I'm not incompetent. I do just fine. I pay my bills on time. And they said, okay, this VA employee said, okay, <coughs> excuse me, we'll let you go ahead and handle your own affairs. We won't declare you incompetent, but I'm still going to appoint myself as a fiduciary to handle your money. I'll let you write the checks for the bills, but I'll handle the money. I'll handle getting the deposits done, this sort of thing. Well, the veteran wasn't given a whole lot of choice. He was either do it or lose his benefits. The next thing he knows, and by the way, he was—he had not been able to get treatment at the VA hospital for throat cancer. They just weren't returning his phone calls. Basically, is what it boiled down to. He couldn't get an appointment. Once they diagnosed him, it was like, "No, go away. Leave us alone. Just go on, go off and die somewhere." The next thing he knows, he's been using that money to pay for his own treatment, his VA benefits. He stopped getting his benefits. The checks didn't come. He contacted the VA. They claimed they didn't know what was going on. Then it was found out by his bank, ultimately, that the checks were being sent to a bank in another state and deposited in an account in the name of the wife of the VA employee who was this man's fiduciary. Now, to begin with, VA employees are not supposed to be fiduciaries. That's illegal in itself. But here the money was actually being stolen from this man. And that's a good example of what's going on out there, ladies and gentlemen. Let's take our final break. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy. Only on America's Web Radio. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation. 
which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. So what I'm, I'm trying to tell you is that please honor our veterans. Please help empower them. Let them know that you appreciate what they did. I had something remarkable happen a couple of weeks ago on my birthday. Uh, Ann and I went out to dinner. She was taking me to dinner at a restaurant in, uh, called the Old West Burger and Bean. And we went and had a very nice dinner there. And nobody told, knew it was my birthday, but I was wearing my U.S. Army veteran hat. And as we got ready to leave, the uh, owner of the restaurant, who we know fairly well, came up and said, your check has been taken care of. And I said, well, that's very nice. I said, can you tell me who took care of the check? And he says, that young man in there, and he pointed at the busboy who was cleaning tables. Now, he, the dinner we had probably cost this kid more than he made the whole night as a busboy. I snapped him a little salute. He just grinned. And what about his business? That's the type of thing that any of you can do to honor a veteran. Buy him a drink. Buy him a beer. Pick up their tab. I know a few years back there was a situation where this was not long after the war on terror had gotten full swing and we... My son, oldest boy, was going to and from Afghanistan, to and from Iraq. And he was living in Phoenix, Arizona with the National Guard when he wasn't overseas on active duty. And he would fly through Dallas often when he was heading back to Fort Bragg or Fort Benning or wherever he would leave from. And one day he was in uniform, and the USO had made special arrangements for those of us who had family members coming through the airport to escort us in so we didn't have to have a boarding pass or ticket or anything like that. They would escort us in so we could spend some time with our family member. Well, they had done this for, for Sean and I, and Sean had a couple of hour layover. And so I took him to the Chili's restaurant inside the airport to eat. And uh, we, he was in uniform, so obviously he couldn't have a beer or anything. So we both had some iced tea. And we both ordered a couple of sandwiches. And when we asked the waiter, I asked the waiter for the check, he told me that it had been picked up. And I asked again, by who? And he pointed to an elderly gentleman. Well, I say elderly, he was about my age, but I guess that's where I am at this point. <clears throat> pointed me to this gentleman who was sitting at the bar, not far from us, and who had a cane next to him. And the waiter told me that this man came in every day to the airport 
and security let him through because they knew what he was going to do. And every day he went to that Chili's restaurant. And every day he picked up the tab for any soldiers or other members of the military who came through there in uniform. Every day. And this had been going on for months. After that, whenever I would travel and I would be in an airport, if I saw members of the military sitting at a table near me at the same restaurant I was in, I would pick up their tab. And I remember doing it one day for a couple of soldiers who were in the Dallas airport, and I was fixing to fly out, and I, I bought their lunch for them. And they came over and thanked me, and the, then the bartender picked up my tab to thank me for doing that for the soldiers. So it's sort of a pay-it-forward type deal. You can do that. You have no idea how much it means to a member of the military or to a veteran, especially some of us veterans from the Vietnam era in particular, to just have somebody come up if they see us wearing a veteran's hat or a veteran's shirt and come up and say, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. Following the Vietnam War, with the exception of members of my family, it was 25 years before anybody other than a member of my family thanked me for serving my country. What happened at an LSU football game on Veterans Day. And I was sitting there wearing a, a hat that my late wife had bought me and said, U.S. Army veteran. And this was a number of years ago, right after the uh, war on terror started. And somebody saw me sitting there in the stands with that hat on. And he walked up to me and thanked me. Didn't know me. Didn't know who I was. I didn't know who he was. But he thanked me. And that literally brought me to tears because it never happened before. Now, since that time, I've been thanked quite a bit when I'm wearing a veteran's hat. Like I said, I had the remarkable incident of having a young teenager pick up our tab for dinner. Honor our veterans. Help us fight for them. The United States Justice Foundation is working with attorneys for the Rooney Lawyers Project. We're working with the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee to try to protect our veterans, to keep them from losing their Second Amendment rights, to keep them from being disarmed. They're getting letters saying you're going to be declared incompetent because of your mental or physical disabilities. And now we're finding out those include minor PTSD, ever having been depressed or told a doctor you were depressed, letting your spouse pay the family bills, and I've got all this in writing. Or even having your bills automatically paid by by the bank every month. We're representing a lot of veterans out around the area, around the country. If you're a veteran and you need help preparing an appeal, because you have very few rights, the burden of proof is on you, which is a violation of the due process clause of the Constitution. But you know what? What the heck? Obama violates the Constitution every day, and so do most of the members of Congress. They violate their oath of office every day. But contact me at michael at usjfmail.net. 
That's Michael at USJFmail.net, not .com, but .net. Let them know what your circumstance is, and we will try to provide you with assistance. We are not charging you or your family anything for this effort. We're not charging any of the veterans we represent anything. So please contact us. And if you're listening to this show today, go to usjf.net and donate to help us help the veterans. It's not just the veterans' cases that we're involved in, but that's a major part of it. In fact, I've got to brag right here at the end of the show. Two days ago, there was a major decision by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that upheld a decision by a judge here in Texas, a federal judge, that said that the Obama granting of amnesty, and you understand, you have to understand that Obama cares a lot more about the illegals in this country and apparently a lot more about the prisoners and terrorists being detained at Gitmo than he does about our veterans or our active military. But his amnesty plan was declared unconstitutional. An injunction was continued against him doing it because it violated the Constitution of the United States. He had no authority to do what he did. The authority to handle immigration law is entirely within the Constitution granted to Congress. The reason I'm bragging a little bit is because we filed a brief, the United States Justice Foundation filed an amicus brief with the Fifth Circuit, which we believe had a lot of impact and helped them make the right decision. I'm very proud to have my name on that brief as the counsel and executive director for the U.S. Justice Foundation. I didn't prepare the brief itself. I read it and had an opportunity to, to make comments about it. It was prepared by Bill Olson and Herb Titus, uh, two attorneys that work with us often and work for the United States Justice Foundation as well as other groups, preparing a lot of briefs that we file in courts of appeal and file in the United States Supreme Court. These guys are outstanding, and they did an outstanding job of this brief. And if you want to go to look at the brief, I have posted it on my Facebook page with a link to go to it directly so you can read it. And it is extremely good. I'm extremely proud of it. I'm proud of the fact that, that we help win this case. And we will continue in the Supreme Court. Again, we need money to, to do that. Because we don't charge anybody anything for that. So if you can go to donate to us, go to usjf.net. Also, you can keep up with things on my blog and michaelconnelly.jigsy.com. That's where you can order a copy of The Mortarman. They make, we make great Christmas presents. Also, you can read about my novel, Amayali, A Story of America. And by the way, I'm writing another novel right now, which I hope to finish in the next few months. And then there's also copies of Riders in the Sky, the Ghost of Legends film on Scout Ranch, available through there, plus my latest book, America's Liveliest Ghost. And then there's my booklet on the Constitution called Our Constitution, just like this show, where I take each article, each amendment, each section of the Constitution, I print them the way they were originally written, and then I put in my comments about what they really mean. It's a pocket-sized booklet. A lot of people are getting it. A lot of people are carrying it around uh, in their 
handbags or pockets. A lot of people are buying large numbers of them to hand out to schools and to high school age students. Because obviously our kids in high schools, for the most part, are not being taught about the Constitution. They're certainly not being taught about it in college. Just look at the University of Missouri. So you can order copies of that through that website or through www.constitution.jigsy.com. Thank you for having me with you today. Thank you for listening to me. Encourage other people to do the same. And happy Veterans Day to everyone, but particularly my fellow warriors. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.